This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this evening is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2. It's found on page 398 in the Bibles in your row, if you'd like to turn there and follow along as I read. Nehemiah 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I have given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Senballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been put upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant of Geshem and Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, 
the God of the heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Well, good evening. My name is Michael Prevatero. I'm one of the pastors here and serve as a campus minister at Xavier University. Um, so before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that you probably didn't come to church today excited to hear about building the walls of an ancient city. Probably not. On the forefront, it's, it's actually a little weird, just to be totally honest. Because um, normally you, you walk into church hoping to hear something about prayer or marriage advice or maybe the Ten Commandments or something, but not Old Testament masonry. But here we are. Uh, we are continuing our series through the book of Nehemiah, which we started last week, which is about a guy named Nehemiah, uh, who was a, the cupbearer to the king. He was almost like a, a second-hand uh, assistant to the king of Persia, uh, and he led a team to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And you might be asking, why is this a book of the Bible? Uh, rebuilding a wall is not quite on the level of, like, you know, parting the Red Sea or the Sermon on the Mount, or other miracle kind of stuff, right? Fair, that's a fair point. But in the big story of the Bible, this is actually a really important section. Because it's primarily fulfilling some ancient promises made to God's people in the past. Because up until this point, there's a, there's a whole lot of story that happened before, before the book of Nehemiah. And for centuries, God's people had been really screwing up the whole people of God thing. Right? And God had sent them prophets to tell them to, to knock it off, uh, or judgment was going to come on them. And of course, the people didn't listen to the prophets. And so in 586 BC, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonian Empire as part of God's judgment upon the people of Israel. But even when the prophets were predicting destructions, they also reminded the people that God wouldn't be angry at their sin forever and actually eventually restore them. And, which brings us to the book of Nehemiah. And this, is, this book and, and the book of Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi are about this period of restoration in the Bible's history, in people of Israel's history. Nehemiah itself, this book, is really focused on the question, what does it look like to do God's work? And what is God's ultimate goal? And this book is one man's story showing a way to do that, a way forward. So this book is really more about, it's more than just about building a wall. It's more uh, than, than just about masonry. It's about rebuilding and restoring of a people and a kingdom. And as Josh mentioned last week, in our own lifetimes, it feels like a time to rebuild, to build and rebuild, doesn't it? Especially after we've been coming out of a, a two-year global pandemic that has really shaped all of our lives. And why do I say that? Besides pandemic. Well, 20-some years into this new millennia, I'm not sure if we've actually built anything of lasting value, to be totally honest. I mean, uh, other than the smartphone, our technology is primarily the same as it was in 1960. I know there's been some, you know, revolutions and innovations in certain technology, but for the most part, everything is, is still just a little bit better than it was in 1960. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I was told in the future we would have, like, jetpacks and flying cars, and we don't have any of that stuff. We have, uh, we can watch movies on a five-inch screen, which I guess is cool, or we can watch people do dumb stuff on TikTok. That's, you know, that's, this is the future. 
it's a little disappointing. And if you look at our economic and social situation we find ourselves in where there is inflation and record high anxiety and depression rates and rising crime and record high overdose deaths and partisan divides and climate change and war in Europe, we haven't really done a great job, have we, in the last two decades? Uh, it seems clear to me then it's a time for restoration, renovation, and new life, and if not now, then when? I can't think of a better time to be about this. So, that's a big task. How do you do that? How do the people of God do that, and why should we be even about that task? Well, in chapter 2, we have a model for what it looks like to live and work as one of God's people, especially when there's a big task at hand. So I want to look at three aspects of this chapter. First, prayer and action, conflict and wisdom, and then finding hope in the midst of this task. So... Focusing in, chapter 2. Um, last week we read chapter 1, which, in which Nehemiah hears the news about Jerusalem. And chapter 2 takes, about, takes place about four months after chapter 1. Now, if you're just casually reading along, you probably missed that because you're probably not an expert on the Hebrew calendar and these Hebrew months. But if you know that, it's actually kind of surprising. Because, I don't know about you, but I seem to remember in chapter 1, Nehemiah was pretty beat up and having a really good cry session about the broken walls of Jerusalem. So why the heck would he take so long to talk to to King Artaxerxes about this, right? Uh, If it were me, and I hear that something is messed up, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to jump into action, right? If if something is broken at my house, I'm going to get some tools and try to fix it right away. If I have a hole in my wall, I am at least, at the very least, going to get some plywood, or garbage bags, or maybe, like, make my children stand there and, and try to patch up the hole with something, right? I'm going to do something about the hole in my wall. I'm not just going to let it sit there. But Nehemiah waits four months. Why? Why would he do that? Well, uh, the scriptures tell us that he is praying and fasting for that long. He doesn't take action right away. He waits because he's praying and fasting. And part of that is because Nehemiah knows that anything he tries to do apart from the king of the universe is doomed to fail. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Or in this case, a wall. Unless the Lord builds a wall, uh, those who build it labor in vain. And there's this really interesting interplay between prayer and action happening in this section. And if you're like me, it's really easy just to swing kind of between the two. Either I'm all action or all prayer. Uh, but this middle position that Nehemiah seems to hold is really challenging, right? I either, I either say, I have a ton to do, and uh, God wants me to do this, so I'm getting to work. Or, you know, if you're feeling a little lazy or scared or tired, you might say, um, I'm going to pray about that. Like if someone asks you to do something, you're like, oh, I'm going to pray about that. I'm going to take some time to discern. I don't know if God really wants me to floss my teeth today. I'm going to pray about that. Uh, sometimes you need to pray for a while. Sometimes you need to get up and do something. Sometimes you need to do both. And that is what Nehemiah does. He finally it, it lets the king see his sadness. Right? As, a, as someone who's very close to the king, he spent four months um, in his presence, and this time he finally lets him see what's going on. Now, I don't know really why, other than that he spent four months 
making his requests known to God, and now he feels like it's strategically the time to make his requests known to the king. And then look at verse 4. Even before Nehemiah asks, he shoots up a quick, silent prayer to God. Nehemiah is this model for balancing both prayer and action, and we see in this chapter that God works through both prayer and action. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, once said, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. I don't know about you, but we always say we're busy all the time. I can't imagine if I was so busy spending three hours in prayer, yet Luther models it for us. Maybe he had more time on his hands. I don't know. But this is the pattern of Jesus and the disciples as well. The Lord regularly withdrew to pray before continuing his ministry. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples were told to wait and pray in the upper room for the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And they waited something like, you know, five, six weeks. It's been said that waiting time is not wasted time. The 20th century theologian and apologist Francis Schaeffer said in his sermon entitled, The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way, he said, The central problem of our age is the church tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the Spirit. Because the world is hard, confronting it without God's power is an overwhelming prospect. And notice what Nehemiah says in verse 8. He says, And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. God is at work through Nehemiah's prayer and his actions. So what is God calling us to do? What is God calling you to do, whether that's at work or on your street, or on your campus, or in this city? What does it look like for us to be about this task of building and rebuilding and seeking the welfare of the city that God's put us in? Well, first, pray about it. Start there. Uh, I mentioned a list of all the bad things going on in the world around us at the beginning of, of this. Spend some time praying about those things. Again, Nehemiah took four months. And then... When the time is right, act. Do something. And then continue to pray about it as while you act. Now, of course, um, even if you do that, it doesn't mean this task of seeking the welfare of the city is going to be easy. In verse 9, Nehemiah finally arrives in Jerusalem, and he arrives with the king's authority. He arrives with officers of the army and horsemen, and you know, whenever anyone shows up in your city with an army, uh, people tend to notice. And so these two other leaders in the region of Samaria, Sanballat and Tobiah, uh, they don't like this envoy, envoy showing up at all. Especially it means their power may be limited in some way. We don't exactly know why they don't like it, but they don't like this thing that Nehemiah is doing. And uh, so they, they, they complain about it. And what, this is to be expected, actually. Whenever we are seeking to do God's work or is seeking to live a life that Christ has called us to, it's sort of the whole story of the Bible. Actually, if you think back, you have in the beginning, there's Adam and Eve in the garden doing their thing, and then the serpent shows up. Moses goes to free the people of Israel from in Egypt, and Pharaoh says no. You have David and Saul, Israel and the nations surrounding them. Jesus and the Pharisees, the Jedi versus the Sith, right? Professor X or Magneto, Jerry Seinfeld, and Newman. There is always uh, an enemy, an, an nemesis. 
And the message of the Bible is don't be surprised if conflict arises when you set out to do God's work. Don't be surprised when a Newman of your own pops up or you suddenly experience suffering or heartache. I, ref- I recognize that, that reference is like 30 years old now, so, but I'm going with it. Um, my first semester in seminary was, was, was one of these times, you know, this is like 10, 15 years ago. Um, it was the semester of flat tires. We moved to St. Louis uh, to go to Covenant Seminary, my wife and I, um, and I have no evidence that the devil was out there in the middle of the night, like, shoving nails in my tires, uh, but it felt like it. It felt like it a lot, because I lost count of how many flat tires we got that first semester. It felt like every time I walked into my car, lo and behold, there would be another flat tire. And maybe in St. Louis, there was, like, some dude in the back of the pickup truck, like, spreading nails, like, on the roads, like, just for kicks. I don't know, but it was, it was absurd, the amount of flat tires I had, usually punctured by a nail. In fact, there was one time um, where I changed the tire, put the spare on, turned out the spare was flat. I mean, that's the kind of stuff where you start to question your sanity. You're like, am I in a, am I in a movie or a, a, a video game or something? Because this is crazy. And it was frustrating enough that I even started to think maybe it was a sign that I shouldn't be pursuing ministry. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't do this uh, Jesus thing. And it was hard because we were, we, weren't, we were both working part-time jobs. We weren't exactly flush for cash. That adds up, right? Not to mention it was like the first time I'd lived on my own really far from my parents and my family. It was just my wife and I trying to figure out what it means to be married and adults and all this stuff. And this kept happening. And eventually, I was like, okay. There's got to be something bigger than this. There's got to be some sort of spiritual warfare thing or something, because there's someone or something that doesn't want me to do this. And because of my personality, that just made me want to do it more, actually. But there is this battle in all of human life between the people of God and the people and the minions of the serpent, to use the categories of Genesis. If you experience conflict as you set out to follow God in whatever it is, Don't be surprised when that happens. That's what's going on in this chapter. That's what's going on in the story of the Bible. That's what's going on in the story of the world. You're not crazy. And so what does Nehemiah do? What does he show us when this stuff happens? Well, he presses on. He doesn't let that bother him. He he begins first by, by getting a lay of the land. He says in verse 12, Then I arose in the night... And I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. God had put this mission in his heart, so he was going to do it no matter what. But he also plans. He also seeks wisdom. He doesn't go about this task blindly. He strategizes. He figures out what needs doing. Uh, It's been said that grace is opposed to earning, not effort, when we talk about the Christian life. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. It's okay to plan. It's okay to strategize. Uh, Or as one of my seminary professors once said, God gave you a brain, and he wants you to use it. Nehemiah surveys this whole city, despite the conflict, and comes up with a plan to figure out exactly where and what needs to be repaired and how to go about doing it. But he can't do it by himself either. He gathers people around him and persuades them to join him. He says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told, them of the, the hand, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And the people are moved. Let us rise up and build, right? 
So he experiences his conflict, but he calls others around him to help in the task, and he presses on. Immediately, though, in this story, Nehemiah encounters more conflict, because again, these guys rise up, Sambalit and Tobiah, and now a fellow named Geshem start deriding the work, start deriding Nehemiah, and even attribute false motives to Nehemiah and the people that they're starting this rebellion. But again, Nehemiah is not deterred. He has hopes, and look how he responds. This is in verse 20. He says, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Where's Nehemiah's hopes? Is it in his plans? Like, he makes good plans. Is it in his action? Is it in the authority he's been given by the king? Where's his hope? Notice, it's in the same place it's been from the beginning. In God's power to bring about what God put in Nehemiah's heart to do. That's, that's a bold claim for Nehemiah to make, right? That God called him to do this. Usually when someone says that, sometimes we think maybe they're a little weird. We're like, oh, okay, God called you to do that, cool. Um, at least that's what I do. I'm skeptical. But Nehemiah is sure this is what God wants him to do. How can you be sure when you think God is calling you to do something? Well, notice this about Nehemiah. He spent a long time praying, right? At least, at least four months. And most likely he continued to pray on the four-month journey to Jerusalem. So he's almost like eight months in from the time that he heard about the walls being broken down and the time that he actually arrives. So at least eight months of praying. Um, and I'm not sure if you've ever spent that long praying for something, but it changes things when you do. Uh, I, I experience this. This is not my normal pattern. Uh, I'm, I, like I said, I tend to be a man of action more than prayer oftentimes to my detriment. But uh, there was this period of my life after seminary where I couldn't find a call to ministry anywhere for almost like two years. Uh, and maybe it was me. Maybe it could be me. Uh, but it was also the heyday of the recession and church jobs were few and far between, so there wasn't just a lot out there. Um, so I took a job selling insurance, and I hated it, like really hated it. It was one of the worst years and a half of my life. It didn't pay great. I was selling people contracts, which is what insurance is. No offense if anyone's in the insurance industry, but it, it's selling contracts. And everyone assumed that I was trying to screw them over or, or get money from them. And I was miserable. And I found myself in this period almost pr praying almost every day, Lord, you, send the, you said the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Send me out into the harvest. This is one of the prayers Jesus gives us. And I prayed that for like a year. And nothing happened during that time. I just went to work every day and was miserable, but I kept praying that. Uh, there were no job interviews, no leads, nothing. And then Around the year point or so, uh, a deacon, one of the deacons in the church we were attending, asked me, have you ever thought about college ministry? Um, of course I said, uh, not really, no. But it turns out he worked for this organization that did college, college ministry with local churches called the CCO, uh, and I was desperate, so I filled out an application, and we moved here seven years ago, and uh, here we are, still helping college students know and follow Jesus. And I'm not going to lie, there's days when this is hard, right? It's hard to do something that you've been called to do. Everyone experiences that. Sometimes work is hard. 
And there's days when I think stocking shelves at Lowe's could be a great job. But then I always think back to these days, those days before moving here, about the thing that God put in my heart to do and the time that I spent praying for it and the way that God came through and brought us here. That is the power and the hope that comes from this prayer and action interplay. Um, that's the, the, the courage and strength the Lord provides when we rely on his power to do something. There's a hope that comes from time spent in prayer that transcends your circumstances even, especially when conflict arises or when things get hard. And that's why Nehemiah isn't dismayed when these people who seem to have a lot of power and influence start challenging him because he knows that God is with him. He knows that God has called him to do this because he spent this time in prayer and here he is, tasked to rebuild the walls. But secondly, Nehemiah knows that God has a bigger plan for the world and he's just a part of it. Nehemiah knew that when the law was given to Moses and the land to the people, that God knew the people would turn away from him. He knows the history of Israel, and he knows the history of his people, but he also knows that God promised to restore his people. This is Deuteronomy 30, if you want to look it up at some point. God promises to restore the people even after they turn away from him. And so Nehemiah knows that. He knew God's plan and purposes, and he knew he was living it out, even if it was just a small piece of the puzzle. He also knew that God had a mission for the world that involved Israel. Uh, Nehemiah didn't know the name of Jesus, but he knew of the promises of the Messiah. Right? He knew the promises of the prophets, the, pro- the promises that God had given uh, through the centuries to bring restoration and welfare, not just to Jerusalem, but to all the world, through the people of Israel. And so he had hope. And about 500 years after Nehemiah, Jesus of Nazareth came to the same city, this city that was partially rebuilt by Nehemiah. And he came not as as a cupbearer to the king, but as the rightful king. And only a week later, he would be derided, uh, not by Sambalat and Tobiah, but by the people of Israel. They would kick him out of the city, and he would be executed on a hill outside the walls of the city. Jesus brought a message of hope, and restoration, but he was rejected by the people. He was rejected by this very city that Nehemiah was rebuilding, this kingdom, in order that we ourselves would be welcomed in. Um, As God's people today, living on the other side of Easter, the other side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we know that God is still good for his promises. That we don't just have a Nehemiah who went before us, but we have Jesus who is a better Nehemiah, who uh, has been given all authority to rebuild not just the walls of Jerusalem, but the people of God for the flourishing and the welfare of the world. Christ came to build a kingdom of peace and justice, a kingdom where there is no war, no death, where weapons of violence are reshaped into gardening tools. Christ Jesus came to build a community where all people are equal because we all bear God's image where the king and servant are brothers, where women are not objectified but celebrated, where men are not shamed but called to step into real manhood, where children are protected and taught to walk in the ways of the Lord, where the lion and the lamb lie down together, where sickness is no more, death is no more, and God wipes every tear away from our eyes. That's what Christ came to do. 
And like Nehemiah, God wants to use us to make this kingdom a reality, even in small ways in the here and now. This is the mission he has given to us, his people, the church. We weren't going to do it perfectly, uh, but it's part of what we mean here at New City when we say we want to celebrate Christ and serve Cincinnati. Because God is on a mission to make his dwelling place on earth. And knowing the end of that story, knowing that hope gives us hope even when things get hard. So knowing that, knowing that this is the mission Christ gave the church, knowing that this is the mission he died and rose for, let us labor in prayer. Let us wisely pursue the welfare of the places God has put us in. And let us serve knowing that as God's people bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, assured of his victorious resurrection and coming again, that God is good for his promises. He will come again to make all things new. And in the meantime, he wants you and I to pave the way for his glorious heavenly city that is coming. So pray, rise up, and build for Christ. Let's pray. King Jesus, we look around the world and we see so many things that are wrong. Our hearts ache and we weep when we see war and violence and sadness and despair. Father, even on our streets, in our city, even in our own families. Father, we pray that you would, for all of us here, that you would um, make clear what it is you would have us to do and how to do it, but help us to rely on you for that power. Lord, and use us for your glory uh, in all the places where we serve throughout the week, whether that's at home or at work or, or wherever. Students, Lord, use us for the transformation and the renewal of all things in our city, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.